Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 59 Preconception Obstetrics and maternity care in general are a little strange. Unlike lots of areas of medicine, you're looking after women for a very specific time-limited period. It's very clearly defined care. Care during or immediately after a pregnancy. Or is it? If you're an obstetrician and gynaecologist, then your remit includes early pregnancy. Whereas if, like me, you're an obstetrician only, the boundaries can be a little bit more blurred. Perhaps you start at the classic 18-week point. After all, that's when a woman might be admitted to the maternity unit. Before that, it might be deemed gynaecology. Or do you start at conception? After all, conception is when the woman's pregnancy starts. And what about preconception? Who looks after that? And where does the care stop? Traditionally, that might be at 28 days or six weeks postnatal. But do you have a responsibility for that woman's ongoing health? particularly if she may come back to you for another pregnancy in another year or two. On the whole, maternity care is starting earlier and earlier, with women encouraged to book from six or seven weeks of pregnancy. There's a target, booking before 10 plus 6, to aid with early screening and optimising the woman's health as early as possible. This booking in happens with the midwife. So typically the woman will have a booking in with the midwife, some discussion around screening tests, blood tests, and then a scan around 12 weeks. On the whole, we obstetricians don't get to see women until a minimum of 12 weeks. And 12 weeks will only see the women with complex health conditions. In general, in the antenatal pathway, 16 weeks is when you might meet an obstetrician and that's if you have scored a higher chance of having complications during your pregnancy, perhaps because you have an underlying health condition or because of your previous pregnancies. If I'm meeting the women I look after in pregnancy at 16 weeks, Well, between a third and a half of her pregnancy has already been and gone. She's well into the second trimester. 
that's a bit strange, isn't it? When you think that I'm a doctor that specialises in maternity care. Over time, as we've improved maternity care, morbidity and mortality, less and less women die from obstetric-related complications such as haemorrhage or preeclampsia. And our attention has become much more focused on medical conditions. If you look at the latest Embrace report on maternal mortality, top of the list is epilepsy and stroke. These are not conditions that your average obstetrician feels is their area of expertise. And it's not just this report. Previous reports have highlighted cardiac disease. Again, I'm not a cardiologist. I'm an obstetrician. For some time, this has led to some tension. As obstetricians or obstetricians and gynaecologists, we feel a sense of responsibility for maternal and neonatal outcomes. And that's not unreasonable. Yet many of the issues we're now facing are way beyond our control. The best outcomes for mothers and babies come from being healthy to start off with. If a woman comes to us who's perhaps overweight, a problem that we've seen with increasing frequency in recent years, it's limited what we can do when they're already pregnant and sitting in front of us in the clinic room. We can give some advice on diet and weight gain during pregnancy. But talking to her, as we should according to the guidance, about the increased risks associated with her weight, how helpful actually is that? I've had women comment that it's terrifying. First of all, they've been told by the midwife that they're, in quotes, high risk, that they need consultant leg care. And then they turn up at the clinic where they might be told they're at increased risk of blood pressure problems, preeclampsia, deep vein thrombosis, gestational diabetes, complications from anaesthetic, more difficult births, possibly a bigger baby. And the list can be endless. It can make them feel shamed. And above all, they're then frightened that their baby's at risk because of them, because of their body. It can be a tricky balance giving the right information from which the woman can make her decisions about her care. But equally, there's a time and a place. And how you give that information is very critical to how she'll receive it and how she'll feel about the rest of her pregnancy. Smoking is another massive issue. There are very clear links between smoking and growth restriction and stillbirth. Trying to create a smoke-free pregnancy where not only the mother stops smoking but others in her household do is a key component of the Saving Babies Lives care bundle in the UK. We started checking carbon monoxide levels at booking and this was introduced to help us improve our efforts to stop women smoking or be smoke-free. 
But this got axed during COVID due to the need to blow into a machine and is only just being reintroduced. We can offer referral to smoking cessation services, but they're usually beyond our remit. They're not contained within the maternity service. They may be based in primary care or run by the local council as part of public health. This fragmentation increases the chance that any woman we refer doesn't actually receive the help and support that she may need. And that's if she's motivated to engage and go and contact and respond to those services herself in the first place. So what are we to do? We can abdicate responsibility to others, feeling it's just not our job. We can have superficial conversations about giving up, where we ask women questions and they tell us what they think we want to hear. For example, how are you doing with cutting down smoking? I'm doing really well, doctor. I'm down to just five. Or we can try a really open conversation. Tell me about those five. What is it that's stopping you getting from five to stopping altogether? Well, doctor, I always have a cigarette after a meal. So the best I can ever seem to get down to is three. One after breakfast, one after lunch, one after supper, and perhaps one when I go to bed might be four. That's how I end up with four or five. We need to acknowledge the difficulties, the challenges of breaking an addictive habit. Every woman knows smoking is not good for her and not good for her baby. But stopping when you're using it as a support mechanism, when you're going through difficult times, when you've been doing it for years, that's very difficult to do. If we can get things right before pregnancy, we can affect dramatic improvement. In the early 1990s, a link between folic acid and neural tube defects such as spina bifida or anencephaly, where the skull doesn't develop properly sufficiently to protect the baby's brain, can be reduced. Anencephaly particularly is a lethal abnormality, meaning the baby has a zero chance of life once it's born. So a recommendation of taking folic acid supplementation prior to conception and in the first few weeks of pregnancy to reduce the prevalence of babies affected in this way is now pretty standard. We advise women to take 400 micrograms of folic acid and women with some conditions such as epilepsy or diabetes are advised to take a larger dose, 5 milligrams. When I was researching this episode, I thought about this success story and decided to dig a little deeper. And actually, I discovered there's been very little change in the rates of neural tube defect in the UK, at least from 1991 to 2012. The rate sits at 1.28 per thousand. And this was a surprise to me. Just to be clear... The reduction we should see would not be due to termination of pregnancy and screening out these babies. This would be 
sufficient folic acid in the woman's bloodstream that would allow the developing embryo to develop properly, as it should, rather than with a life-threatening or life-limiting error. Okay, so if everyone knows this, why haven't rates fallen 30 years on? Well, that's back to that stat I quoted in one of my earlier episodes, that up to 45% of pregnancies in the UK may be unplanned. So that's the problem. Some countries have taken an alternative approach. They put supplements in basic foodstuffs, such as flour. This has been done in the USA. But we haven't done that. We rely on the individual or the societal knowledge that this is what one should do. You'd think with drugs prescribed, we'd be doing better. After all, everyone's heard of thalidomide that caused so many birth defects back in the 60s. But it's taken a very long time for sodium valparate, which is prescribed for epilepsy and bipolar disorder, to be finally taken seriously. It can cause very serious problems during pregnancy to the unborn baby with birth defects or developmental problems. And finally, in 2018, a robust campaign launched to prevent its prescription to women without thinking about the pros and cons. There are a very specific set of recommendations that a pharmacist, a doctor and a woman have to follow now if sodium valparate is going to be prescribed to a woman in her childbearing years. If we turn back to the confidential inquiry, Embrace, obviously maternal deaths are fortunately extremely rare in the UK, sitting at about 9 to 10 per 100,000. But these are the tip of the iceberg. It's important to learn the lessons from the maternal mortality report because underneath sit many, many more women for whom pregnancy can have significant complications and impact on their long-term health. As the average age of motherhood rises, so too does the number of women with underlying medical conditions. Recent reports have considerable emphasis on optimising health and well-being and rationalising medication prior to conception. The report names almost every common medical condition. Epilepsy, diabetes, asthma, top the list. Surely it should be straightforward. There's a dilemma. How can we make sure that every interaction a woman has with a healthcare professional for any medical condition in her childbearing years considers the possibility of pregnancy? In an ideal world, we'd love to have proper preconception clinics. There we could optimise the women's health, drug treatment that she's taking for any pre-existing conditions. These appointments would happen prior to pregnancy. And in some areas and some specialties, these do exist. For women with diabetes, for example. Is part of the problem the fact that they don't fit into our primary, secondary healthcare model structure? And if these clinics are not the responsibility of obstetricians and gynaecologists, 
How do we in obstetrics and gynaecology work with colleagues in other specialties to make every contact count? Make every doctor seeing a woman in that age group to consider pregnancy, planned or unplanned, when they've got a myriad of other things to consider in that perhaps 10-minute appointment. The sad thing is that the recommendations from Embrace are hardly rocket science. Yet they need to be said. Why is that? For example, one of the recommendations, ensure a thorough history is obtained from women with pre-existing medical disorder to ascertain its severity. Seriously, does that need to be printed? Then this, women with pre-existing medical conditions should have pre-pregnancy counselling by doctors with experience of managing their disorder in pregnancy. That action says, by it, all health professionals, service managers. No wonder I, as an obstetrician, feel somewhat overwhelmed. How am I going to make sure that all health professionals do that? Then we've got things like counsel women with asthma regarding the importance and safety of continuing their asthma medications during pregnancy to ensure good asthma control. Again, action. All health professionals. I can't tell you the number of times women have turned up to my antenatal clinic having abruptly stopped whatever medication they were on before pregnancy. And I'd love to say that this was because they hadn't asked their GP. But in some cases, it was actually ignorance on the GP's part that they had told them to stop their medication. Women frequently come to me for advice about medications. Often I have to restart things. But I'm playing catch up. Remember, I said I'm seeing people 16 weeks onwards usually. Good does come out of tragedy. The dominance of sudden deaths from epilepsy in pregnancy and new mothers has drawn attention to the real need for joint maternity epilepsy teams. And the positive result is that the risks to women can be significantly reduced with that right expertise in place and with the woman and her family knowing what are the warning signs and what are the things that she should be alert for. So how can we make sense of all this? Let's try in the zesty bit. Any contact with healthcare is an opportunity. Wherever you work in healthcare, if you're seeing a female patient, think, is this woman likely to want to get pregnant? And ask her. Make sure decisions about her healthcare include that thinking, either to optimise her health, ready for pregnancy to keep her and her baby safe, or if she's not thinking about pregnancy, to include good contraception. If there are drugs that she is taking that would be less than ideal to take in pregnancy, do you need to switch them? Might that take a period of time? What would be the pros and cons? 
if she has an existing medical condition? Have you explained to her what effect, if any, it might have on pregnancy and postnatally? Some chronic conditions actually get worse after the baby's born. Does she know what impact pregnancy might have on that medical condition? If you work in maternity, can you network with the other teams and specialists across primary and secondary care to share knowledge and understanding? Maternal medicine networks are an aspiration of the long-term plan to support better care for women with acute or chronic medical problems. Can you get those conversations started, share your expertise, with you sharing your knowledge of pregnancy and them sharing their knowledge of the other conditions? If you're caring for a woman with a chronic health condition in the postnatal period, does she have a solid plan for contraception? And does she have a follow-up appointment with the relevant expert once her baby's born to review her own health needs? Otherwise, we can miss the opportunity and see a woman back again very quickly, having once again not optimised her health before becoming pregnant. If you're a pregnant woman or you're considering pregnancy and you have a health condition or you're not in your best of health, do you know what medications are safe to take? Do you know what you could do to improve your health and well-being? What you might need to change before you get pregnant? If you got pregnant as you are now, Do you know what impact pregnancy might have on your health condition and what impact your health condition might have on pregnancy? And if you find yourself unexpectedly pregnant, seek health advice and please do not stop your medications abruptly. That could do far more harm than good. I've enclosed a link to an excellent website about medicines in pregnancy where you can look up some of the medications you're on and see what the advice is and whether they're safe to take. So I think the lesson here is that obstetrics and maternity care are far more wide-reaching than initially we can imagine. And the same is true of midwifery. Now we have midwives coming with direct entry who are not necessarily nurses they need to make sure that they understand these health conditions that they may have had less experience of during their training. And women are often experts in their own conditions and they can teach us an enormous amount. So ask women with long-term health conditions about their condition and also what patient groups they belong to or what resources they use because they can bring a wealth of knowledge to us as healthcare professionals. Maybe in the future, with the advent of maternal medicine networks, we'll have a much more integrated preconception health programme. But in the meantime, I hope this is given a few pointers on things to think about 
to optimise your health and the health of the women you care for in those preconception and early weeks of pregnancy. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of The Obs Pod. Feel free to contact me on Twitter at FWMaternity or at The Obs Pod to ask me questions, give me topics for future episodes or let me know what you think. It's absolutely fantastic when you get in touch. I really enjoy reading your comments. As usual, I've tried to include in the programme notes some extra reading about this particular topic, both for professionals working in maternity care and for pregnant women using services. I'd like to reassure you that although I'm talking about my experiences working in maternity care, I take confidentiality very seriously and do not give any personal information about any of my patients. If you've enjoyed listening, I'd love you to recommend the OBSPOD to friends or colleagues. And please do leave me a review on whichever podcast directory you find my episodes. Many thanks for listening.